All right, well, I hope all you all are, are doing, doing well this morning. Uh, so Luke chapter 16 is, is where we are uh, and today. And uh, I know that it is Resurrection Sunday, and I, I, I call it Resurrection Sunday because that's the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed everything. Um, it is by far the single most important day in all of history. Uh, it, it changed history. We, we define history by the resurrection of, of Jesus. Um, it wasn't just another day, and that's not just another important date that comes around in the calendar, but it's the day that changed everything. It's changed the whole trajectory of the world. And the reason why is because it, it marked the beginning of the, the new covenant, the, the new covenant in, in Christ, the, the covenant that God was bringing about since Genesis 3, that his plan was being worked out, redemptive history was being worked out, and it culminated in the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection. It changed the way that we relate to God. It says now that we can be reconciled to God because of Christ. It's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. It is of what is first importance. The cross and the resurrection are of the first importance. It's what we, we hold on to as the, the center of what, we, of what we believe. It is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is centered on the cross and the work of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It's the, the resurrection is what seals our justification, which includes the pardon of our sins and the, the promise of eternal life based upon the principles of His righteousness, a righteousness that was imputed or given to us on our behalf not in the consideration of any of the works of righteousness that we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer, in His work, His substitutionary atonement. And by faith, we receive it. By faith, we receive this perfect righteousness that is then freely imputed to us by God bringing us into a state of peace and favor with Him. Reconciliation and redemption is what then secures every other blessing of our life. And it's all through the resurrection. It's all by the resurrection. This is what we believe here at Sovereign Grace Church. This is why the, the cross of Jesus Christ and the, the, res, the, resur, uh, the resurrection which was appointed to him by our sovereign God in order to bring about the salvation of his people. This is the center of Christianity. It's the center of what we believe. And that's what this Sunday is about. But more than that, it's what every Sunday is about. Resurrection Day is not just the arbitrary day each year that's decided by Passover. The resurrection is something we celebrate and we observe every single Sunday. That's why we gather on Sundays. 
Last week, as we were ending uh, Luke 15, we saw the, the great love of God on display as a father who draws sinners, sons to himself through the prodigal son. And I think the question that we come up to, and I think Jesus answers some of that today in Luke 16, and, and this has a lot to do with the resurrection too, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, is what do we do now? What, what is to be done when, when you have God who draws sinners to himself? Well, what, what then is to, to, to do? What are these forgiven sinners and moralists live? If, if, if we have been transformed and we've been made new and we have been justified by the gospel, how do we live? How do we follow Jesus? How do we relate to one another? How do we relate to God? Because of the person work of Christ's death and the resurrection, does that really change us? In Luke 16, Jesus turns to his disciples. He turns to his disciples and he tells them, what it means to follow him. And, and we've actually talked a lot about discipleship in the Gospel of Luke. But right here in Luke 16, Jesus zeroes in on one very particular point, very, one specific point of discipleship and what it means to follow him. And in this one way, this one specific way, it reveals a whole host of other things. He tells his disciples to be fully devoted to him. To be fully devoted to him. This is what that, that love that we've seen in chapter 15 does. It, it brings about a transformation, brings about a holy devotion to Christ. Now Luke 16 has to do with money. Yes. Who preaches a sermon about money on Easter Sunday? No one. So count your blessings. But if you're to be a disciple of Jesus, this one specific thing reveals so much about us. It reveals so much uh, 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 about us. It, it's a, it, it shows a, a barometer, in a sense, of what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about Christ, what we believe about salvation. If, and if the resurrection is true, then, then it changes things. It changes everything. It doesn't just change history, but it changes our lives. It transforms our lives, including the perspective on what we use our money and our resources for. And how we use them. So here's the plan in approaching chapter 16. The, the plan is, is we're going to unpack the, par the parable. We're going we're to pull it apart. And we're going to show us how Jesus applies it for us in, in two different ways. And then I want to show you, I want to kind of come back. And I want to show you three ways of how the resurrection empowers us to be wholly devoted. And, and the ways that Jesus is telling us to, uh, uh, to be. So let's, let's look at Luke 16. Let's, let's read it together. And Luke 16. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a, who had a manager, and, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting possessions. He called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, 
for you can no longer be manager. And he said to himself, what am I to do since, I, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails you, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches. And if you have not been faithful in which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to him, you are, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts this morning to hear and to see this holy inspired word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So the last three parables of chapter 15 were pretty famous. Pretty easy to understand, pretty straightforward. But here, the parable of the dishonest manager, the wicked manager, it's, it's kind of tough to understand. We have to kind of look at it with a, almost kind of a skeptical eye, like why would Jesus commend this dishonest guy to us? The, the prodigal son, the parable starts off, kind of like this one, where there's a guy who, uh, who is wasting the rich man's possessions, just like the young son of the prodigal son who wasted his own possessions. In fact, it's the exact same word that's used. The manager was supposed to be a trustworthy guy. He was supposed to be the guy that was not only trustworthy, but, but competent. He could, he could do his work honestly because he was going to be in charge of the whole house. I mean, if you were going to put someone in charge of everything you owned, including all of your finances, everything was given to them and they would take care of everything, you would want someone who was trustworthy and someone who was competent and someone who was honest. Apparently, this guy wasn't. Now, we don't know what he did, but we do know that in, he was guilty because he doesn't dispute the charges. He was guilty, and he was busted. The writing was on the wall for him. He was going to lose his job. He was going to lose his position, and he was going to lose, I guess, his dignity now. 
because he was going to be ashamed in front of every, everybody. And he was going to lose everything. So what does he do? Verse 3, remember, writing is on the wall. He's about to lose his job. There's not much left for him. There's not much that he can do. He says, I can't do manual labor, he's too, and he's too proud to beg. Right? He, he either may be just old or he may be lazy and don't want to do those things. I don't know. But this is who he is. This is the perspective of this kind of guy that we, that we have here. But what does he do? So as he's desperate. Right? This kind of parallels a little bit of the prodigal son, right? He's desperate, but this guy goes up, goes in a completely different direction. He, he hatches a scheme to, to figure out a way to, to kind of coerce other people to take care of him all at the expense, once again, of the rich man that he was supposed to be the, the, the manager for. He totally goes on the opposite end of the direction as the prodigal son. Verse 4, he, gives, he, comes, he comes up with a plan. He says, well, I, I know several people who, who also work for the rich man, and, and they owe him lots of money or lots of things, and, and they haven't paid them back. So what I can do is, is I can get these guys, and I can cut their bill at a certain percent in order to, to curry a, a favor with them that you know, I could use whenever, whenever I you know, may need to. And that's what he does. He gets, them, he gets them together. He asks them how much they owe so that he can negotiate with them this, this, this lower debt so that they can get, uh, so he can get that favor. Kind of a, uh, a, you owe me a big favor at some point. I'll scratch your back if, you, if, if, if I can uh, have you come scratch my back when I need you to kind of thing. Sounds pretty shady. Sounds very dishonest, of course, but here's these people who are in major debt. In, in major debt, they, they jump at this deal because this guy offers them a deal that they can't refuse. I mean, the first guy in verse 6, he's offered 50% off. He's offered 50% off. If you owed 100 measures of oil, now that's, that's olive oil. That's over 900 gallons of olive oil. That's, a, that's at least what 150 well-producing olive trees could produce in one year. That is a lot. And he is saying, hey, I'm willing to cut that in half. I'm willing to cut that in half. Of course you're going to take that deal. It's a good deal. That's like, that's like three wages of one normal, way, uh, normal laborer that he cut off for. Too good of a deal to pass up. Same thing for the, guy, the second guy in verse 7. A hundred measures of wheat. This is a lot more. That's about a thousand bushels. Thirty tons of wheat. Thirty tons of wheat this guy owed. That's, that's the yearly of a, of a, a equivalent of about a hundred acres of, of well-producing wheat. And he offers him 20%. Still pretty good deal when you owe that much. And, and we can also continue to assume that he just went down the line to the next guy and to the next guy, and he got favors all over the city, all over the county, all over the, the people who owed the, the, the rich guy. He just kept going and going. He went through all the books. And this group of, of, of his favors just grew and grew. 
this, is some, this guy's got some guts. He knows he's about to be canned, and this is what he does. Dishonest, wicked, he's a thief, but you've got to hand it to him. Or do you? Now, verse 8, we get to hear back from the manager, or the, we get to hear back from the, the rich man, the master. He he's, finds out what this guy has done. And then, of course, we would think this guy would be furious with this man, furious with this man, and then maybe a little upset for himself for, number one, trusting him originally, but, but not kicking him to the curb quickly, but letting him continue in this, this work. And after this guy's newest stunt, he is just losing money left and right from this guy. But what is the response that Jesus gives to us of the master? He says that he, he praised him. He, he gave him props for being shrewd, for, for having such an elaborate plan. I mean, as all dishonest as he was, I, I got to tip my hat to him for this. That's, that's kind of what we, we see here. Yeah, he's, he's, not, he's not praising him for stealing from him. He's not praising him for being dishonest, but he's just saying, gosh, what a, I guess now I know why I hired him in the first place. He was ambitious at least. And these are, this is kind of one of those stories where it's kind of the unlikely hero of the story. It's the kind of guy you don't really want to root for, but you kind of end up rooting for in the end. Right? He's the, he's the, the Walter White of Breaking Bad. Like, you just don't want to root for that guy. Am I the only one that's ever seen that show? Okay, I'm sorry. Like, you don't want to root for that guy, but you end up rooting for that guy. You know those movies and those shows, and then you kind of feel terrible that you did. That's, that's this guy. And that's kind of what we see from the, uh, the master here. But the, the rest of the verse, verse 8, though, gives us the explanation of the positive reaction. It says, for the sons of this world, meaning unbelievers, right, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation, other unbelievers, than the sons of light. Right? And sons of light, these are, these are Christians. These are followers of, of Jesus. So, so here was what Jesus is saying. He's not telling us that, that yes, he is, he is condoning dishonesty and he wants us to do these things. No. But rather, he is highlighting that a disciple is someone who is shrewd, who someone is that ambitious and astute in his following Jesus and being devoted and, and we know this is a, a true statement, what Jesus says. Like, like, we can look all around the world, and we know that the world is very good at doing worldly things. That's why we call them the, the world. They're, they're much wiser in the world than Christians are. The world is much better at worldliness than Christians are. And, and this is just a, 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 a kind of a, a side note for us, because this is another reason why the the church should never try to attract the world by using worldly methods because we're terrible at it. I mean, watch Christian movies, really, seriously. Some of them are good, but they're just not there. We can't compete in those things. It always will look like a cheap imitation. It's, some, it's the things that we don't understand. So, this parable is not telling us to do worldly things, but to be shrewd, to be wise. Ultimately, I think what Jesus is telling us, he's telling us to be faithful. He's telling us to be faithful.
faithful with the things that God has given us to do. Two ways he applies it. First is the shrewdness. You see that in verse 8, but also in verse 9. Again, he's not commending the the actions of the the manager. And I think that's where some people kind of have a hard time with this. Because like, is Jesus really lifting up this guy who's being dishonest? We're not to be worldly. We're not to be dishonest. But what he's telling us here is that sometimes Christians or disciples, we fail to see how, how we can be shrewd in, in the using of the worldly things that God has given us to a spiritual advantage. That's what he's telling us here. The, the dishonest manager, like, in, in the, he knew how to get things done. You know, in, a, in a very worldly way, he knew how to get things done, and he knew how to get what he wanted. And, and then in this parable, it's sort of a, a, a spiritual analogy of how Jesus wants his disciples to behave. How wise and, and faithful, and sometimes even quick, urgently like this guy was, with the things that God gives us to leverage them for the kingdom of God. But according to the standards of the kingdom of God. To be kingdom shrewd with everything at our disposal. You see, the world knows how to leverage their money and resources and energy to secure their own interests, personal and selfish. But how about us? Do we know how to use our resources, the things that God has given us, our money and our energy? Do we know how to leverage these things in a shrewd-like way for the kingdom of God? And this is what Jesus wants us to be thinking about when it comes to being a disciple and following him. And he applies it even even further in verse 9. He says, and I tell you, my friends, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So there's the money again, right? The unrighteous wealth. There's the money again. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, literally, that, that unrighteous wealth means money. Like what's in your pocket or not in your pocket? Money. It also can be translated, we've seen it in other translations, called mammon. And that has a, actually a further context because mammon means almost anything, not just money, but how we use our homes, how we use our, our, our cars, how we use our, our, our businesses, how we use all of these things. They're all at the disposal for the Lord. All of our resources. And so when he says, be shrewdly, you should be shrewdly with everything. Now, now, verse 9 is kind of a reality check. Because just like the manager, there's going to be a day, like Jesus says here in verse 9, there is going to be a day when our current state of affairs, our, in our worldly self, and our physical self, it'll all be over. Or it'll be gone. And so the question that Jesus is is really bringing to us here is is how will we use those resources as the stewards that God has put over them in a way that makes it look like we are Christians? We actually believe the things that we say we believe. Money will fail us. He says it'll fail you. It's, It's a terrible God to worship. So, so use it to be shrewd, as he says this very specifically, to, to gain friends for yourself. Now, what does he mean by that? That means, means we live in such a way 
that shows that we are generous with the things that we have been given. And we're generous in the way that we, the things that we give. A, a, kind, of, a kind of generosity that attracts. And, and, I, and I mean that in a good way, not in a bad way. In a way that, that attracts others. A generosity that, that brings friends along, that, that shows the gospel to them, and they believe in Christ. People want to be around generous people. And one of the blessings of these friendships, when the money fails you, is that they are the ones who welcome you into eternal dwellings. The, these friends are, 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 are people who followed you, who became Christians through, through the conduit of your generosity, the, of the things that God has given you. And then there will be signs. They are the signs. Those friends are signs of you being welcomed. But not only that. Deeper than that, when we are faithful, when we are faithful, showing who our real friend truly is, that only God the Father, only God the Son, God the Holy Spirit can really welcome us into heaven. To be faithful and to be shrewd in our worldly wealth in these ways is to show who our real friend is, and it is to have God as our friend. And if God is our friend, then we have an eternal home. You see, Jesus is saying these things and speaks in these things and about these things and about money and, and, and everything else in the world. Remember, this is not just money, but it's, it's mammon. He, he talks this way about money in those terms like unrighteous wealth. He uses those words very intentionally because that's all it is. That's all it is. It's just money, money that is a, a means to an end. But that end for us is not for us and for our desires and for our wants, but it's about the kingdom. I mean, have you ever wondered why Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? That's what he thought about money. He, that's, what he, that's what he thought about money, and money didn't control him. It didn't matter, and this is what it means to be shrewd. To be shrewd with these things, because it doesn't control us. And that brings us to our second point of devotion. You see that in verses 10 through 12. This is all about Jesus drawing in our devotion, and particularly how we use our money and our resources. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Dishonest with little will be dishonest when in much. So if we're not faithful in the unrighteous wealth, meaning we, we don't use it and see it as a means for the kingdom uh, of God, then then if we're not faithful, then God will not entrust us with true riches. You see that there? And I think that's in verse 10. See that there, verse 10, or is that verse 11? True riches. That kind of should be a shock to us to see how significant this is. A shock to our, to our souls. Jesus couldn't have made it more clear for us to understand. You know, there, there are two things in this world that enslave people more than anything else, and money is one of them. You can guess what the second one is. Money is one of them. It's because it's so powerful. It's, it's so seductive. And, and, and we are so easily tempted to give our whole lives in service to it because it's so easy to love. And the more we have the more we can believe that it won't fail us. And it doesn't, and it, and it, and it doesn't give us 
or what it does is, is it gives us access to the best things, doesn't it? It's easy to love because it gives us access to the best things. It opens up doors quicker and faster, don't they? That's what money, money does, and it gives us a sense of safety. It gives us a sense of security and, and happiness that's immediate and faster. It's even faster than waiting on God. I could just go out and do it. It's what it does. It can insulate us and inoculate us from reality and consequences. Money makes a powerful competitor to God's claims. And it does the same things in our heart. It makes the same kind of claims in our hearts and in our lives. Money makes a powerful competitor to God's claims over our hearts. But look at verse 13. It gets even more stunning. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, it says money, but that's also mammon. That's, that's, that's everything. And man can't serve two of these things. We're either going to serve one and hate the other or despise the other, or we're going to Love the other and not serve the other. You cannot serve money and you cannot serve your stomach. Can you not serve your comforts? You cannot serve your sleep and your time and sports and hobbies and, and worldly accolades and still serve God. Like there's, there's no middle ground. I mean, Jesus is very clear on this. There's no middle ground here. We're always going to serve something. We're always going to make someone or something else other supremely than Christ. And that's what the human heart does. And that's why we serve money and we serve all of those things so easily. Each time we use our money and our resources, the mammon that God has given us, we are essentially declaring who our God is. Either money is our Lord or Jesus Christ. Or Jesus Christ. You know, it's been a great joy for me as a pastor of our church and the ongoing ministry of this church for the past three years to, to watch you all give sacrificially for the church. And, and what's the blessing it is for me is I get to see two things. Is I get to see um, the physical reality of not only God's provision for the work of the ministry here at Sovereign Grace in Statesboro, but also I, we get to see how God has been working in our hearts in this area. And, and so as we come to this, you know, this text of devotion and, and, and shrewdness and money, my encouragement to you is to keep pressing, keep giving, keep leaning in, keep, keep gaining friends, keep gaining friends for the gospel, keep being wholly devoted to Christ. Search the areas of your life where, where shrewdness can be worked out even more, and faithfulness even more. So that brings me to the last part of our sermon here. Why? Why in the world should we live like this? Why in the world should we live like this, with this kind of radical devotion to Jesus? I mean, you talk about weird. You talk about, talk about weird. Of, of money not having that kind of place in our lives and our things and that, that kind of place in our lives. 
And the answer to that question is what this day is, Resurrection Day. Because it's the resurrection, as I said in the very beginning, it changes everything. It's the resurrection that changes our, our views and our perspective and our purpose with these worldly things, the worldly wealth that the Lord has given us. And I want to show that to you in three different ways. Number one, the resurrection frees us from the love of money. Jesus is not telling us to be paupers. Not telling us to be paupers. Remember, money isn't the problem. Our hearts are. I've, I've known wealthy people who are totally free with their money and to the Lord and are grateful to the Lord for that. And I've known poor people who are misers and miserable. The problem isn't money. The problem is, is our hearts that, that leads us to love money and to serve money as if it is God. And the only way for our hearts to be freed from such things, from, from, from such a love, and to change those affections and to change those desires is to replace one treasure with a greater treasure. Right? You have, you have one treasure is wealth, money, worldly things, but then, then there's this other treasure, Christ and the resurrection and the gospel and God is that a greater treasure. And the cross and the, the resurrection, when we fix our eyes on Christ in this area, that, that changes it. it. It totally changes us and frees us from the love of money. Let me show you 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it up there? Can you put it up there for me? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. But through what? Listen, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his great mercies, he's caused us to be, to be born again into a living hope. And what's that living hope through? Through the resurrection of Christ. To what? Verse 4. To an inheritance that's imperishable. I don't know about you, but imperishable means it's not going to fail. It's, it's not going to fail. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. It's not here. It's not, it's not here. Our perspective is not here. Our perspective is eternal. Our perspective is eternal like Jesus. That's why Jesus spoke the way he did. He called it unrighteous wealth for a reason. Because it's eternal. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, and this is for us. Listen to this verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. That is why the resurrection frees us from the love of money and anything else in this world that wants to enslave us, that wants us to serve them. This is why Jesus spoke the way it is, because in comparison, that is nothing. 
Salvation is the great treasure. God is the great treasure. Christ is the great treasure. All the other stuff is just other stuff that's supposed to be used shrewdly for the kingdom of God. And verse 8, I think, is amazing. Because even though we did not see him, think about it, we still love him. Why? Because we believe in him. And we rejoice in a joy that is inexpressible. Think about that. That's joy. Which means by faith we, we see just as clearly. Not by sight. We don't see by sight. We see by, by faith. And by faith, we see the cross. And, and, and by faith, we, we are overcome with joy and emotion. It is, it is secured an inheritance that's imperishable. The resurrection frees us from the love of money, but to a love of Christ and to rejoice in Christ. Look at the second one. second one I want to say is the resurrection frees us to love others and to serve God. Love others and to serve God. So, so if all of these things are true, we just talked about in the beginning, so the resurrection is freeing us from uh, um, the love of money, then we are free to love God and to serve God and to serve others. Again, look at 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13, continuing. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And what are we preparing our minds in? We're preparing our minds in, in these eternal truths that were just told to us about salvation. And about the resurrection of, of Christ. We prepare our, our minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that we be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Serve, which means, our, or to, to serve ourselves or money, right? So there's the former ignorance. We can apply that to our passage here. The former ignorance to serve ourselves in money, just like the world. No, we, wanna, we don't want to be conformed to those passions, but as he who has called us to be holy, you are to be holy in your conduct, which has, brings us into being obedient to the verses 8 through 13, the application of the, the text we just unpacked. To be holy in these things. And all because, again, all the way back up to the resurrection. This is why the resurrection frees us to love others and to serve God. Because it gives us that greater perspective, greater affection, a greater desire to use all of our resources to serve and love God and being generous with what we have, winning friends. Number three, last one. The resurrection frees us to live joyfully now while looking forward to our future. And I say that because we can find happiness and joy now in our resources. And, and, and we can use those for our, our desires. But it's the resurrection that has us living in a real joy now, but also looking forward to a future joy. So everything that we have is to be leveraged for him. And it doesn't mean that when we do that, we're going to be miserable. It doesn't mean we're going to be, uh, we're not going to have any fun or we're going to be able to enjoy ourselves. But in fact, it's the exact opposite because we're no longer slave to it. We can live joyfully now while looking forward to our future. And all that is tied into the 
the hope given to us in the resurrection. Look, look, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to see this for yourself so as we read this. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If not, it's going to be up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, resurrection, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead, which is our future resurrection when Christ returns, right? So this is that future hope. There's our, there's our future hope. But, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Which means that if, if there is no future hope for us in a resurrection, then Christ is not resurrected. And if those things aren't true, then brothers and sisters, we're just wasting our time right now. We might as well go home and hunt for Easter eggs and wait for the hand to be cooked. Because that's all we got. That's all we got is Easter bunnies and Santa Clauses. But if the resurrection is true, then we are not wasting our time. Because there is a future hope. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified, testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If he, if for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, meaning we're still stuck. We're still stuck in our sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. There's no hope. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, I mean, if in Christ in this life only we have hope, then, then we are all, then we are of all people most pitied. He's kind of painting a picture if the resurrection isn't true, then we are to be the most of most pity. If our future doesn't include life eternal, in our own resurrection, like Jesus, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And, and all of this has been a waste of time and money. And if, this, and if this life is all there is, and if money and our resources, what we have, is all there is, is for today, here and now, then we are to be the most pitied because we've just been wasting it. We should have just went and bought a boat or another house or something like that. But look at verse 20. This is where it changes. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's our future hope. So the resurrection like, gives us joy now, but then it gives us joy now because we are looking forward to the future hope. And here it is. For as such all Adam all die, so also in Christ all men, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes to the end. When he delivers the, to the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
That's what we have forward to, to look forward to. This is the perspective that Jesus had, and this is the perspective that he is telling us to have, to be eternal. Look down to verse 50. Verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inter- in- inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. What is he telling us here? A ton. (laughs) He's telling us a lot here. He's telling us that our future is bright. And if we are trusting in Christ, then our future is bright. Not even the very thing that everyone fears, death, can, can actually kill us. Can ultimately destroy us. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's, the statement of verse 58 is very obvious, especially with the message when he talks about the money and our resources and the mammon. He says, be steadfast, be immovable in these things, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work, knowing that the Lord in your labor is not in vain. So when we do these things, we live in the way that Jesus tells us to live. They're not in vain. That's the perspective that the resurrection gives us in light of our money, in the light of our money. So Jesus is telling us, let's close it up, let's wrap it up, land the plane. Jesus is telling us to be wholly devoted, completely sold out for him, leaving everything out on the field for him, however you want to put it, especially in how we spend and use our money using our time and our our resources. Everything to be leveraged for him and for the kingdom. But the resurrection and the cross, that's what sets us free from being enslaved to money. It's what redirects our hearts and our minds from mammon and from money and to serve those things and to serve God and to set our hearts and our minds upon him It's what sets us on something greater, on something deeper, on something eternal. And and reality, what what can compare to that? What what can compare? What what has more significance than, than these things? And the resurrection. The resurrection shows us that we can be wholly devoted to him. Wholly devoted to him. And our perspective of this world can be just like Jesus in this area for him. The resurrection has changed everything. It even transforms and even changes the way that we use our money. 
See, I told you it would make sense in the end. I hope it does. Maybe more just confused there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, the word. Thank you for teaching us very specifically what it means to, to use the, the worldly wealth that you have given us to be good stewards of. And I pray, Lord, that in our, in our hearts we would show what we truly love. And Lord, we know that we cannot do these things without first bring, being freed. First being freed, first coming to Christ and know him and being drawn to him and repenting of our sin and having faith in him. And however, O oh Lord, how you would lead us this morning in this, we pray that you would do so for the glory of your name. Amen.